0: Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I'm very excited to have a well-renowned scholar, Colby Downson, onto my program. Um, Colby, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Stephen.
1: It's, it's really good to be here. I've enjoyed watching your show.
0: Okay. Well, that's great. And so I'm, I got to uh, read your bio here, dude, but It's now not coming up. So why don't you give us a little bit of your uh, scholastic background and tell the audience about it?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So um, yeah, I have uh, two undergrad degrees one in comparative literature and one in religious studies, both from the University of Utah. And then I have a master's degree in history from Utah State University. And currently um, I'm working in an MA PhD program in English at Indiana University Bloomington.
0: So uh, you have quite an extensive extensive time in academia, and uh, you've Mm -hmm. of of course you're a very busy guy, dude. And and you're like part of the reason we're doing this interview now is I have no idea if we're going to have the opportunity to do another interview through the fall semester. So I thought I got to get you uh, on as soon as possible. So I'm glad you're able to. We were able to work our schedules out. Um, So Kobe, here you are. Here's this. You're the middle child you like to skateboard, you like to play the guitar in your bedroom at, at night, and yet you're also interested in ancient uh, scripture or documents. Uh, tell me what kindled that interest.
1: Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I think, you know, just growing up in bountiful Utah, growing up in a very, you know, conservative and religious state, um, I wanted to um, understand, you know, this, this this uh, text, the, 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 the Bible, um, and understand it a lot, a lot better, you know, understand its origins, its background, um, and how the, you know, individual texts were composed and, and all of those kinds of things. So yeah, that was what I, you know, originally went to do um, during my undergrad was just to study actually Hebrew Bible. Um, I took courses on New Testament and Mormon studies uh, in the religious studies department, well, it was not the department, but in the religious studies program, At the University of Utah um, as an undergrad. But yeah, really, my whole plan originally was just to do Hebrew Bible and early Judaism. So, a lot of things with Dead Sea Scrolls and, you know, um, the kind of the historical context. Um, But yeah, so that was sort of the trajectory. And um, through the sort of graduate process, um, I shifted at Utah State University um, more toward like early American literature, the long 18th century. Um, reception history of the Bible, the development of biblical criticism, um, those kinds of things. So still very related uh, to what I was doing as an undergrad and wanting to do in graduate school. Um, but yeah, just a slight shift. I do a little bit more with the literature now and more broadly um, how the, um, the Bible, um, the King James Bible in particular, um, uh, has you know, influenced modern society.
0: Yes, and we're going to get to that, and I want to talk uh, right now a little bit about um, modern uh, biblical scholarship, um, a little bit of higher criticism and lower criticism. Um, just kind of explain to me the lay of the land right now where it comes to uh, textual criticism and biblical scholarship in the modern context.
1: Yeah, um, so, you know, um, there a lot of people can be surprised at some of the very basic conclusions of modern biblical criticism. Um, you know, uh, I like I, I did, you know, uh, an interview a year, a year ago uh, with your friend Rick Bennett over at Gospel Tangents and we talked quite a bit about that. And um, a lot of the things that I shared were, you know, just pretty basic conclusions um, in, you know, um, biblical criticism. And it was, you know, really interesting to see some of the responses to that um, in, in the months afterward. Um, but yeah, you know, um, it's still a development, uh, developing process. Um, I engage more um, specifically with Hebrew Bible still um, than New Testament textual criticism. Um, but, you know, if you were to go in and sit down at any of the sessions at this year's um, annual um, uh, meeting for the Society of Biblical Literature, uh, they're going to be in San Antonio this year, uh, you would you know, see very, very well developed um, uh, tools uh, to, uh, that are used on a daily basis by thousands and thousands of scholars. Uh, most of them, this is something that a lot of people don't seem to know. Most of them actually, you know, have a faith um, that they're they're uh, connected to, that they're tied to. Um, some of them, um, you know, uh, grew up a certain tradition and left that one for another one. Some of them left that for nothing, you know. So, um, but it's it's very apparent though that for most of the you know, scholars that I engage with. Um, in the Society of Biblical Literature and in other um, societies as well, um, that, yeah, it's, it's still very important to their faith in one way or another, right? Um, but that in order to understand um, the text of the Bible um, and its literary and historical contexts, um, multiple, you know, plural um, contexts, then there are, you know, lots and lots of tools um, that scholars can use to understand uh, those texts, not only just scholars, but um, Lay readers um, as well who want to understand uh, the, the the text and the history of the Bible better. So, um, yeah, um, there there are always you know ongoing discussions about you know just as an example the the, the composition of the Pentateuch, the Torah, um, so the five books of Moses and how those were composed and. Um, it's kind of popular right now for over the, over the last decade or so to say that, you know, there's this sort of eruption of uh, and, you know, chaos going on in biblical scholarship because the documentary hypothesis um, sort of got, you know, knocked down a few rungs um, a few decades ago. Um, but even then, um, all American and Israeli and um, European scholars agree um, still on something like 60 percent um, of um, you know, identifying which sources um, the the five books co- uh, come from. So, just as like a crash course, I guess the documentary hypothesis was the theory um, that that pretty much everybody um, agreed on for about a hundred years, from Julius Wellhausen in the 1870s until almost the same uh, you know year a hundred years later um, uh, in in the late 1970s um, with Rolf Rentorff, Um that was the reigning theory. Um, and it was essentially that you know, when you jump into the beginning of, of Genesis, um, you have two creation accounts. And um, you have all of these differences and repetitions and contradictions. That's really a big key, the contradictions. Um, and scholars in the 18th century, um, some biblical scholars, some not. Jean Astruc was actually a physician. He was a French ph- physician. He was the one that he was actually defending. Uh, mosaic authorship when he created what would become uh, the documentary hypothesis so he was actually really trying to stick to the faith and you know stick to the traditions Um, but um what later he what he created would later become the documentary hypothesis and it essentially argues that there are four sources that went into the composition of the um, of the 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 Torah the the Pentateuch and um it's J-E-D and P and J is the Yahwist, the Yahwistic source. E is the Elohist. D, Deuteronomy, and P is the Priestly source. So the Genesis one starts with the Priestly source. It's focused on the calendar, it's on the you know this, the the six days of creation and resting on the seventh, um, those kinds of things. And um, Genesis two, but four verses in, um, starts um, uh, the J sources account um, of creation. So you actually have you know uh, the statement when there was nothing on the earth, when there was no man, you know, but so, you know, readers um, over the last few hundred years, at least have looked at that and said, but there, but there are people, <laughs> just that one chapter before. Um, so um, um, that was the reigning theory, like J, E, D, It was very clear cut. And then in the 1970s, some German um, scholars uh, looked back at that and said, Basically, Priestly source, yes, Deuteronomy, yes, but all of these other um, sources, especially E um, and J, um, they're too disparate. It's not really like a clear running narrative. And so um, these really aren't continuous sources. There is nothing that sort of binds the source together like it does with P and D. And so for Europeans, it's P and D and then non-P and non-D. Uh, there's even some pre-P. <laughs> so it's a little bit more complicated there, but still, um, Europeans, Americans, and, and Israeli scholars, um, and Japanese, and Indian, and lots of other scholars all around the world, um, um, all still you know, um, have a very good sense of um, those five books coming together through disparate sources and being edited together as one whole. And you essentially have something like that for most of the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there are some books like Malachi um, that don't have very many sort of accretions or additions. Um, Zechariah splits right in half. Zechariah 1 through 8 is probably written mostly by Zechariah. Zechariah 9 through 14 is by Deutero Zechariah. Um, Isaiah is a really famous one. Lots of people know, you know, that they're the the, the tripartite um, separation of, of, um, of Isaiah, so the three authors, um, there are actually far more um, than that within Isaiah itself. It's complicated. Um, but yeah, you get that um, even in the New Testament too. Um, Second Corinthians um, New Testament scholars um, argue that they, that might be as many as two to five different um, uh, epistles that were all kind of spliced together. So, yeah, um, historians like, and biblical scholars look at these texts, try to understand their origins, their contexts, um, and at the same time, it's not just about that. There are other scholars as well trying to understand their influence, trying to understand how over the centuries for different communities, those texts have been read and understood and um, other authors have built on them as well.
0: So we're going to get back to Isaiah in a little while in regards to the Book of Mormon. I just want to have a little conversation with you, because I actually have a couple questions that I want to ask a biblical scholar. So I have one in front of me, so I'll just ask them. So uh, one of the uh, dominant um, theories in um, the uh, creation of the New Testament is, uh, especially regarding the Gospels is that you have this uh, hypothetical document called Q, which is German for or Quelle for source. And uh, basically it's thought that the authors of Matthew and Mark um, were using, um, oh no, Matthew and Luke were using um, Mark and Q. Uh, Is that generally speaking the consensus within biblical scholarship?
1: From, from what I've seen with um, a handful of my friends that are directly in New Testament scholarship, that is still the dominant theory. Um, I, I think over the last few years, maybe five years or so, I've seen some of them mention that there have been some cracks um, starting to develop. There are um, a handful of scholars that have published books recently that um, attempt to argue that Luke actually knew Matthew um, and that Luke was, was building on Matthew and Mark um, and then of course, um, to add to what you were saying as well, um, Matthew and Mark both used, sorry, Matthew and Luke both used Mark, um, but then they, they also had Q. This would be the, the theory that you're talking about. But then they also had uh, material that was unique to them that um, you only find in Mark, uh, Matthew, that you only find in Luke. Um, but yeah, the, the, the shift that I've been seeing, I don't know how drastic it will be, but it's potentially moving in that direction. Um, Will be at least that more scholars will start to, um, you know, argue that Luke was dependent on Matthew. Um, so we'll see. Um, there, there, you know, Kloppenburg is is kind of the main scholar for Q. Um, you can read any of his books; they're all fantastic. Um, and you know, um, he'll probably be, you know, continue to be sort of the main proponent of that. But he's also really good, from what I've seen, um, and I haven't seen you know a whole lot from him. But um, in in at least saying. Okay, you know there are some some issues here,
0: but still, um, you know this is this is still the best theory. So, so yeah, I mean I've I've engaged a little bit with Dr. Mark Goodacre, who's kind of a pro, be, uh, become a proponent of this. And and, and actually, our mutual friend um, Dr. Christopher Thomas actually um, advocates this position as well. And so I just find it very interesting because I'm kind of like doing an Occam, I'm actually just going to ask these questions because I have you here. So, but I have like an Occam's razor situation here where the simplest explanation being, to me, it almost makes more sense that um, Luke had access to Matthew and Mark, and it, it, it actually is the simplest explanation. And so therefore, in one sense, could be the correct one. Now, I still lean towards the, the, the Q hypothesis, but I do think that this new scholarship that's coming out is very intriguing to me. And I kind of like look at it, in one sense, and this is kind of just me being a little naughty, is uh, that uh, it's almost as though you have a secular Gnosticism. We have this mysterious uh, document that we can access with this special knowledge that it it contains, and it's called Q, the source. And I thought it just kind of comes across that way to me a little bit. I'm being a little cheeky, but I just want to get your response to that.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, think, I think that's, that's a good point, point. and yeah, it, uh, I think that Q is, is complicated. I mean, you can get critical editions of Q. Um, there's, you know, a version of it published in the Hermeneia commentary series, and um, the same editors did another version, or I think, in Peters or another European um, publisher. But um, it's really, really complicated, and that's an area that I honestly I haven't really delved into a ton. You know. Um, uh, because it's not directly you know, related to my research, um, but yeah, you know, there are some things that um, f- for work that I have done, um, I would have questions for Goodacre and a few others, you know, because um, I think it is interesting how, you know, it's very clear that that Matthew um, cobbles together bits and pieces um, of, of something, and you get the Sermon on the Mount. And it, it's complicated to me to then see that and how it would become the Sermon on the plane if Luke was dependent um, on Matthew, but I'm sure that there could be some good explanation from, from Mark Goodacre or, you know, one of one of his colleagues um, that could explain that to me. Um, but yeah.
0: I just want to thank you for being a good sport and uh, indulging me on this little conversation. Um, So one of the things I want to talk about is uh, we're going to kind of engage one of the areas that you have recently been getting really interested in, which is the literature. And you were telling me, we were having a conversation the other day, and you were telling me about what what historians of this period call the long 18th century, which covers the periods of 1660 to 1830. In other words, that's kind of like viewed as, and, and actually you said you've done a little bit stuff before that as well, but essentially. Actually, that's kind of like a, a, an era of history that historians look at and study and specialize in kind of explain what that's all about
1: yeah um it's kind of just uh, an attempt to you know not be too rigid on you know the, the centuries that we study right so i i study what's yeah called the long 18th century um but um you know i'm also involved in the c19 um the um it's a society that of, of you know scholars who study the 19th century um, as well. So it allows historians to recognize that while we have the chronology and the years and we divide everything up, things didn't change from as, as, as drastically as we would think from 1690 to 1710, right? You don't just ignore 1690 if you're studying 1710. And so it's, that, it's basically that attempt to say, yeah, like most of this stuff that I study and, and, and look at falls within this century but I kind of need to go forty years this way, thirty years this way, and you know it's all kind of included. I think that it uh, originated with with some um, British scholarship um, um, trying to understand um, um, the period and and particularly um, British literature. Um, but yeah, you also there are scholars of the long nineteenth century, which which goes back a little into you know the eighteenth and a little into the twentieth. So yeah, the, the periodizing um, has been. So, um, and I think rightly so, um, sort of muffled a little bit at the edges, and and you know, try trying to incorporate, you know, more um, into that century so that we can really you know understand, you know, just like today, we can't really understand a lot of you know international politics without uh, also studying the '80s and '90s, um, the 1980s and '90s. So, um, yeah, it's it's just recognizing that things didn't
0: just sort of start in 2000. So however you do that. So I, I would say like, okay, so th- so this period of time, of course, 16th City to 1830, 1830 is like, it's an important date within Mormonism. Uh, it encompasses right. uh, this period of time. And one of the things that you've kind of been delving into is the Bible's influence on literature, in particular, the King James Version uh, on the literature of this period of time. So maybe just delve into that a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so... Yeah, that, that really started for me during my, my master's degree. Um, I was working with Phil Barlow at Utah State University and um, some other just incredible um, scholars that were on my committee there. Um, and um, yeah, I, I wanted to really delve, just dive in a little bit more to um, the writings of like Milton is really kind of at the beginning um, of that you know, period, the 1660s. So I, I do technically go a little bit earlier than that because Milton was writing before the 1660s, and I've, in my master's thesis, I wrote um, quite a bit on the humanists um, and the development of biblical scholarship in the 16th century. Um, but yeah, the majority of the texts and the people that I study are some, you know fall somewhere within the 1660s with Milton, um, also John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, and his other works um, all the way up until um, 1830. And that, those are pretty widely recognized. Like if you're talking about the long 18th century, it's just funny that 1830 is right at the beginning of Mormonism, and yeah, really with my with my study um, with Mormonism, I, I know certain you know, some things um, after the 1830s, but really I have stayed with up until about 1833 with uh, my research on early Mormonism. I study you know specifically the texts, how they were composed, what kinds of sources went into them, and influences those kinds of things. Um, and yeah, there's there's I'm finding a lot of other things right now in the 18th century that I'm really enjoying studying Gothic literature in particular. Um, so that that is widely recognized as starting in the 1760s, and particularly 1764 and 65, with the first and second editions of Horace Walpole's Castle of Otranto. Um, So those are um, really fun. It goes, the classics, the the origins of of Gothic literature go from about uh, 1764 to the 1820s. But I also study in in the early 19th century um, uh, the historical romances of Walter Scott. Um, I do quite a bit of work also with influence of the Bible and print culture and uh, material culture um, as far as like you know, studying what kinds of biblical commentaries were available. Um, who was sort of cobbling together biblical commentaries? Because there were a lot, actually a lot of um, books that were printed that way, uh, where you might have you know some of Poole's notes and and Henry's notes and um, you know other scholars from the you know the eighteenth century all kind of combined into one by some you know random editor. Um, so yeah, I, I, I jump around quite a bit and and look at that. Um, I also do um, quite a bit of, you know, on the influence of the French Revolution um, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. So that was a key part of the argument of my uh, thesis, my, um, in my, my master's thesis. Um, so yeah, there, there are a lot of, you know, different, different things that um, I work with and I'm sort of, you know, um, on this trajectory of trying to figure out, okay, um, studying Gothic literature and religious literature, and all of these different texts and like the political influences, which are very similar, um, and yeah, just kind of trying to figure out how to put the the tools that I've developed, you know, over um, the years that I've been, in, you know, in, in undergrad and, and graduate school, um, toward that kind of study. And the kinds of, um, I guess, fruits of that that labor um, can be found in the four or so um, essays that I've published up to this point. So.
0: I've had a chance to, to peruse some of those as well. Um, so yeah, just, um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about how in the context of King James' uh, influence on literature, I just want you to briefly talk a little bit about, I remember a few years ago, uh, there was a big thing about the late war, and how it was written in a King James style, and how some people have kind of maybe uh, paralleled or, or compared that to the style of the Book of Mormon.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it was the Johnson Brothers at uh ex-Mormon uh, conference um, released some of the data that they had been working on. I think that they had actually written some kind of software that um, looked at the, um, it, it compared sort of the biblical cadence, I guess, the King James cadence of the Book of Mormon to other texts. And yeah, the... Um, the Late War um, was, was published, I think, just after the War of 1812. Um, I don't remember exactly what year it was published. Um, but yeah, that was the one on their, their sheet that came up the, the most related um, to the Book of Mormon. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, I, I think that there is still work that could be done um, in that area. Um, a, f- a friend of mine, Ryan Thomas, did a handful of blog posts at the time, um, several, uh, several years ago. Um, um uh looking at some of those connections um it's been a little while since i've looked at that um but for me yeah like for all of the the uh, the ways that um you know i've sort of analyzed the 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 text of the book of mormon the king james bible is the clearest um as far as you know direct influence is concerned um on not just language uh, but the actual structure the actual writing Um, of the the narratives and the stories um, within the Book of Mormon itself. So um, there's still a lot of work that that needs to be done in that area that hasn't been done yet. Um, Some some publications over the last three or four decades have sort of pointed in some of those directions, like it's been really popular to note that, the um, Exodus from Jerusalem, um, by Lehi and and his family is, um, there are some connections there with the actual Exodus, um, in, in the Torah. So, um, there are things like that. Um, but then there are also, you know, um, more direct, um, connections like with, um, and this one has has been noted in some traditional, um, uh, publications as well within Mormonism. The, um, Uh, The capturing of some of the Lamanite daughters by the priests of Noah um, is dependent on one of the narratives toward the end of the book of Judges, Um, just those kinds of things. Uh, But then there are also lots of stories that are dependent on the New Testament um, as well. Um, And those ones can actually span large swaths of uh, the story and the narrative of the book of Mormon. So those haven't really been fully explored yet, um, either. A lot a lot more needs to be done on the influence of the New Testament on the Book of Mormon. Um, one of my good friends um, down at BYU, um, Nick Frederick, um, has been really sort of trailblazing that area of study and getting more and more scholars um, to, to take that more seriously and to, to really think through um, the influence of the New Testament on the Book of Mormon. So he usually has at least a couple of publications every year um, on the influence of the New Testament on the Book of Mormon.
0: So, you know, this whole process of doing this software, uh, you know, these programs where you're trying to find, is that something that you would integrate into your research if you were doing studies? And also, like, even just getting back to, like, the the different theories about the priestly sources and E and all that kind of stuff, is it possible that they could also use that same software to try to identify those separate sources as well?
1: Oh, right. Um, so, like, for, for scholars within you know, biblical studies if they use that kind of software.
0: Or would like, was, would that be something or, you would use in your studies or would they also try to integrate some of that into their stuff, just trying to f- see if they can have actual s- computer actually detect these sources?
1: Right, um, so yeah, uh, since those are two different things, I'll talk okay. about them separately. Okay. So for me, yes, um, yeah, I was actually invited as an undergrad to write a post for the Maxwell Institute uh, for their, their website. Um, So this was back in 2014 or 15 um, about WordCruncher. It's really fantastic software that they created um, over the last couple of decades that helps you to uh, do a lot of things um, with with studying the text of the Book of Mormon. And you can actually run uh, phrase comparison reports. Um, So I used those a lot in my undergraduate thesis. And my undergraduate thesis is related to your second question, but not exactly there. I wanted to explore um, the question of the influence of Genesis 2 through 4 on the writing of the Book of Mormon. And you know, in the past, um, there were basically just two publications that were related to that. Um, there was one by John Sorensen uh, in Dialogue in the 1970s. He had argued that um, it was likely um, the, the e-source that, they, uh, that you know, Nephi and Lehi and others would have had on um, the brass blades. Um, and he didn't look really at the textual evidence very much. It was more of a sort of theoretical, you know, if they were, you know, potentially from the North and scholars argue that the e-source was from the North and those kinds of things, then, you know, it might've been the e-source. Um, there were, there's more to it than that. That's a very simplified, um, version. But then, um, the second one was in the early nineties and that was, um, Noel Reynolds. And he looked at, um, Joseph Smith's revision of um, Genesis in um, what became the Book of Moses, so Genesis one through six, and um, the the, I guess basically the Eden narrative in the Book of Mormon, and tried to argue that they were both dependent on on sort of an Ur text of Genesis. So the version that's in both of those is earlier than the current text of Genesis, something like that. And um, I responded to that ongoing conversation in my master's thesis, which built on my undergraduate thesis because in my undergraduate thesis, I essentially said the way that Genesis 2 through four is used in the Book of Mormon indicates that the author of the Book of Mormon, or at least the author of the you know individual specific chunks of text that I was studying throughout the Book of Mormon, was not aware of a non-English <laughs> um, version um, of Genesis 2 through4. And at the same time, the actual composition of those sections, the argument and the ideas in those sections about you know, Eve, Adam and Eve, like with Lehi in 2 Nephi 2, um, or about, you know, quote unquote, the fall. Um, and I'll, I could explain that to why I say, quote unquote, the fall. Um, in Alma 42, um, they were the, the, the author was blending um, J with P, uh, was blending the New Testament in with both of those, um, was blending in all of these texts all over from the King James Bible. Um, and you know, blending everything in, and it wasn't just language. It's actually at, you know, the level of the composition of the book. Um, those chapters wouldn't make sense, um, Nephi two or Alma forty two, um, if you stripped out um, the material that um, shouldn't be there. New Testament, you know, um, you know those kinds of, of of texts and and influences and concepts. And um, so that was my undergraduate thesis. My master's thesis, I looked more closely at the question um, of um, how the text of the Book of Mormon interpreted the Eden narrative in the same way as um, Smith's Bible revision. The Book of Mormon, of course, comes before his Bible revision, um, but it's the first thing that he does um, after um, the publication of the Book of Mormon. That's published in March, 1830. And then in June, he begins revising um, the, well, he, he begins dictating Moses one. And then by the end of that year in the beginning of the next, he's already gone through and revised um, Genesis one through six, and it's the same narrative um, um, of Eden that all throughout the text of the Book of Mormon, um, uh, the characters have been alluding to. So not only about you know Adam and Eve, um, but also the, the after Eden story with Cain and Abel, and the idea that Cain had made a pact with Satan, um, and that that was what really you know brings the the downfall of civilizations. And that's what destroyed both the Jaredites and ether and um, eventually the Nephites themselves um, is, you know, um, those, those secret oaths and secret combinations, which was a a buzzword um, at the time, politically speaking. Um, Master Mahon. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And um, I I spend a little bit of time in my master's thesis um, describing um, uh, anti-Jacobinism. um, at the time, and how that um, sort of bled into um, and worked with, um, you know, pushes against the Illuminati and anti-Masonry and all of those, and how all of those um, kind of combined um, in that context uh, with the, the composition of the Book of Mormon. So in, in my, the, my master's thesis, um, I essentially pointed out how um, after Joseph Smith dictated the text of the Book of Mormon, and the, really a core pro- part of the text is this idea that in Genesis there's a story about Cain making a pact, you know, with with Satan. Um, he edited that exact story um, into the first several chapters um, of, of Genesis. So it would have, if he had had the chance um, to publish it um, in his lifetime, if he had decided to, um, eventually, um, it would have, you know, supplied the the version of of Eden and its aftermath um, with Cain and Abel. Um, uh, for the Book of Mormon so a reader of the Book of Mormon could have read right next to that um, Joseph Smith's revised Bible and would have had the same story you know at the beginning of, of Genesis that was being alluded to all throughout the Book of Mormon so um, yeah there's there's a lot there and I, I don't, I'm not sure if I rambled and went off of the topic too much there but that, that was kind of you know my <laughs> my thing um, and then yeah in biblical studies yes um, there, there are a handful of different um, you know, uh, really expensive uh, pieces of software that you can buy um, that help you to do word, word study, word analysis, and those kinds of things. Um, it became really kind of in vogue in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. And every once in a while, it still pops up to do, you know, to try to figure out, oh, you know, authorship and word analysis, We, you know, um, we, we can go through and have the computer sort of spit that out, but there are lots of really big problems um, with with doing those kinds of things. And for me, I try to incorporate, you know, um, technology as much as I can when it's really helpful, but I still do, um, you know, my own work where I go through and do analysis as well to try to catch larger pieces of, of um, narrative or influence. And, you know, it kind of just depends on, on the scholar, um, how they integrate those kinds of things, but it, to the extent that they're going to really use something to make a larger argument about you know this word analysis um, supports the overall argument that you know jay does you know continuously run through i don't know if they, you know, just as an example but continuously run through from genesis to you know the end of deuteronomy um yeah i haven't really seen <laughs> those kinds of things um, but isaiah scholarship i've seen that a few times in the past and it usually doesn't work very well in, in
0: my experience. So. so is the consensus that there was at least six authors of the book of Isaiah?
1: Um, well, I don't know if, you, if there can be necessarily a consensus. It's really difficult because I think um, there were so many hands that went into um, composing Isaiah. Usually the the very, very simplified um, version is that there are three, right? So chapters one through 39 is... Isaiah of Jerusalem. Um, 40 through 55 is Deutero Isaiah. 56 through 66 is Trito Isaiah. Usually if you jump into the weeds a little bit with that, there are a couple of different authors and, you know, Trito Isaiah. I I usually like to say Third Isaiah. Um, And then like a final editor. Um, Deutero Isaiah is pretty clean cut. It's the easiest of of all of the, the three sections at least. There are still arguments and debates, but Usually, you can just say it's you know forty through um, forty through forty eight is one section. Forty nine through fifty five is another. Fifty five is more difficult. Um, uh, uh, about a hundred years ago, scholars thought that fifty five was part of Third Isaiah. So there's some complication there, but um, it's really um, when you get into First Isaiah that's the most complicated. Um, it's it's really difficult, and some fantastic scholarship over the last couple of decades three, actually three or four decades, um, have really um, developed um, in in some really uh, productive ways. I think Um, some of the the, the work of HGM Williamson and his students um, at Oxford University have have been really beneficial to my research. Um, And um, essentially a more broad approach to understanding um, First Isaiah is that whoever compiled the entire book together wrote the first chapter. The first chapter um, was written in in mind of of being an introduction to the whole book. So then um, you have a whole bunch of chunks of text within that um, that would be way too complicated to get into um, in in, in a podcast. But essentially, um, 13 through 14 would have been after uh, much later um, than Isaiah of Jerusalem. Um, Parts of um 6 through 12 would have as well um, but then 24 through 27 was that used to be called the little apocalypse the Isaiah apocalypse um, it's that that has shifted over the last couple of decades um, I think people still refer to it that way but it's it's not really a, an apocalyptic text so um, yeah you have that one 24 through 27 and then you also have um, 33 through 35 which was probably written about the same time as um Deutero-Isaiah. And then 36 through 39 was actually originally um, written in Second Kings. And then whoever compiled um, uh, the, the, the book of Isaiah basically lifted uh, material from from Kings um, and put it in uh, there and sort of edited some of the material there. Different ways of understanding that too. Um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a really, really complicated text. You know, some people argue that 33 through 35 was written by a Isaiah, was it? Not sure. So, you know, if it is, then that's the same hand. If it's not, then you have another author, right? <laughs> um, did the same author write each of those three chapters? Not sure, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it just kind of depends. Um, it's more of a, most scholars look at it and say, okay, um, we at least agree that these are later, that these are early you know, kind of shifting it that way. It's more kind of a relative than a specific direct, like, okay, how many authors were in here? Because it's just
0: complicated. Um, so I think it's good now about how this relates to the Book of Mormon, because the text that of Isaiah that's in the Book of Mormon, um, it kind of poses some questions about uh, which sections of Isaiah were in there and then how we can then compare it to modern scholarship. B.H. Roberts basically made the argument that you know, the the Book of Mormon vindicates uh, Isaiah as being one author because that's what it says. Uh, and that was kind of an early apologetic in favor of the Book of Mormon. Um, kind of just kind of discuss about the Isaiah problem, if you will, and the Book of Mormon.
1: Yeah, no, that's a perfect place to start. You know, BH Roberts is really kind of the first one um, that engages it directly and tries to offer a full explanation. But yeah, um, by the time... You, know, you get to the early 20th century, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, there there you know, were enough people paying attention to biblical studies and the Book of Mormon that um, they said, you know, having the Book of Mormon quote from chapters 48 through 54, 55 is actually a problem. Those were written after the Babylonian exile. So, you know, a group of, of, of Hebrews living in Jerusalem um, couldn't have had access to that if they if they had, you know, scriptures on brass plates that they would take with them to the you know um, to the Western Hemisphere. So, um, yeah, that became a, a problem um, really fast. And uh, B. H. Roberts published a few things on on the topic. And then in the 1920s, um, you had a student. A graduate student at the University of Chicago named Sydney Sperry. Um, he wrote a small master's thesis. Um, essentially, he had a, a short intro that was mostly quotations from the history of the church, the um, seven-volume history, um, with some commentary, and then um, basically the the quotations of Isaiah um, uh, with some notes on and Hebrew, um, and then he had a conclusion. And so that was really that. That was the first like fully academic attempts to sort of start the conversation. And he was responding to some some other scholars that had pointed out that you know, Isaiah was a problem for the Book of Mormon. And um, he he finished his degrees there and then uh, taught at BYU. And then in the 19, late 1930s, he had a, a student, H. Grant Vest, that um, wrote a, ma- a really good master's thesis on, and sorry, I'm just gonna take a drink really quick.
0: No problem, take your time.
1: On the problem of Isaiah, that was the name of the master's thesis, and um, yeah, it it is um, an issue. And most people who have commented on it, you know, for the last hundred years, you know, we're in the (laughs) twenties now, and um, you know, B. H. Roberts was commenting on it before that. For the last hundred years, it's usually just been this simplified version that we were talking about a minute ago. So you have first, second, and third Isaiah. Only second and third are a problem, right? So we'll just focus on those. There's no third Isaiah in there, so we're good. Um, and with second Isaiah, well, we can just sort of argue that there was a core um, 248 through 54 or so, um, and that that was actually written by Isaiah and uh, you know, biblical scholars have gotten that wrong. And there that's there, there are lots of issues with that uh, uh, approach. Um primarily because it ignores biblical scholarship. Not that it's just sort of like, well, they've got it wrong, Revelation's better. That's, that's not, that's not um, it. The, the problem is that they're not even paying attention to the full breadth of, of biblical scholarship. So um, First Isaiah itself isn't in any kind of shape that it would have been in um, when Isaiah of Jerusalem either said or wrote um the material there usually the first person narratives um uh writing in isaiah most like in in those first few chapters um if it's if it is in first person a lot of like most scholars are like yeah that was probably isaiah um particularly because so much of it is written in the third person about isaiah so it's usually those kinds of connections not all the time that scholars are going to be like okay you know some of this is later um but it wasn't even in the same order um, there, there's a huge, like chapters 5 through 11 were reorganized, reordered, um, 11, 10 and 11 were, were most likely authored by at least a later author um, around the time of Deutero-Isaiah, but also um, had some of the same perspective and worldview um, as the author of Isaiah, and that's coming from H.G.M. Williamson's book, um, the book called Isaiah um, from the early 1990s. Um, he explores that whole process, the influence of um, Deutero-Isaiah on the um, composition of First Isaiah. Um, so yeah, there, there are more issues in, in, in it than have been discussed up to this point. And um, it's, it's actually as much of a problem for the Book of Mormon to quote in block form directly all of the wording, all of the text from Isaiah 2 through 12. Uh, to have all of of that, uh, sorry, um, through through 14, Um, all of that um, wouldn't have been in that shape. A lot of it was actually written after the exile, Um, and it's just kind of been unfortunate that, you know, up to this point in Mormon studies, and it's understandable to a certain extent, that, you know, that that part and that aspect of biblical scholarship on Isaiah has been ignored. Um, And... There, there are there are actually um, lots of phrases throughout the the Book of Mormon. Not a ton, uh, but a, a good handful um, that come to, come from Third Isaiah. Um, some of them are sort of um, mediated through the New Testament. Um, you know, Paul uh, liked Third Isaiah, so um, some of his quotations actually um, uh, of Third Isaiah actually end up in the Book of Mormon in different parts. So, um, but yeah, um, I have a a paper that's um, in. In the process right now with a with a journal of um, going through review and um, some revisions on this specific topic. Um, so if that gets accepted and you know and and you know goes ahead, then it should be in, in print um, you know within the next year. or So.
0: So when we were talking the other day, you had showed me some um, manuscripts that you're working on where you're basically showing how the King James version and the book of mormon parallel and you had shown me how in some places there were fair amount of, of changes and other places there are just minor changes where it's almost word for word what's in the king james that's also in the book of mormon i uh, just talk a little bit about that
1: yeah yeah um this was something that i started working on um in david Bakavoy's uh, the book of mormon's literature class i was an undergrad course at the University of Utah in 2013, and um, yeah, I created a critical um, text, and I've sort of recreated it multiple times over the years, and the one that I showed you is the most recent one, Uh, but basically I go through and use the 1830 text of the Book of Mormon, um, and I use the specific edition that they have on the Joseph Smith Papers website, and once I had that, then I started um, comparing that text to the original manuscript and to the printer's manuscript, and putting um, the, um, the notes. Uh, I created, you know, a text critical apparatus that has all the notes for all the different uh, the the variants, the, the differences in wording and spelling um, between those three. I also added in differences with um, Skousen's, um earliest text of the Book of Mormon, um, his edition. Um, and then once I had all of that sort of layered and and on there, and I had my text. I compared that to the King James text. And what you saw, what I, th- I think is really helpful visually to be able to understand the relationship uh, between the Book of Mormon and the King James was that whenever it was the same letter, right? Um, if a letter was different, it would go white, or if it was the same, it was gray. So I highlight it in, in all gray. And um, so I initially noticed this during that uh, course that Essentially, when Joseph Smith would start a block quotation, um, he would make a lot of changes, and then he would slowly make a little less, and a little less, um, and then um, usually by about the end of that block quotation, there weren't that many changes um, in spelling or wording or whatever. Um, and in the larger block quotation with um, Isaiah two through fourteen and Second Nephi, there is a section that I showed you where on the critical text on on you know the 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 One that I created, you only have like you have a full page and a half where you basically only have two letters that are changed. Um, You have an S that's added with forests and then Ramah becomes Ramat. Uh, There's a T that's added and what that indicates to historians like me and Bill Davis and other scholars that are looking at you know um, the literary nature of the text and how it um, engages with um, the King James Bible is that you? You have um, a nineteenth-century editor. Um, that this isn't restoring the text, and that's okay. Like it's not a pejorative against Joseph Smith. It's just that that data is indicating that he is editing the text as he goes, and you can actually extract those those edits. Um, and that at certain points, for whatever reason, um, he, he you know if it was to save time, if he was tired, I don't know. I'm not sure, um, but you know what the data shows is that at certain points he decided to just dictate the text, to to not make any changes, and um, that would not be expected if this was sort of an earlier version of the text or something like that. But also other details indicate um, that it isn't you know someone with the King James Bible um, that's um, um, revising the text as well um, in. I'm trying to think now, but I think it's um, Isaiah 49. So in first Nephi, um, at the beginning of of the block quotation of Isaiah 49, you actually have material that's added that comes from Jeremiah 23. And toward the middle of that chapter, you have material that's added from Duro Zechariah, right? So um, I think it's in Zechariah 14, if I remember correctly. And um, that also indicates that you have someone um, who is thinking specifically, um, you know, about um, Isaiah within its biblical context. He's, you know, Joseph Smith is putting um, the text of Isaiah in conversation with the other prophets in the, uh, the Old Testament. So he's adding in you know, material that's similar, um, that he finds similar um, from Jeremiah 23 and Zechariah 14, and, you know, putting that directly in um, as commentary on um, the, the book of Isaiah. So, um, and he's paraphrasing it too. It's not like he's you know, doing a block quotation of those. It's just strings of words that are very specific to Jeremiah 23 and um, to Zechariah 14 that aren't found anywhere else in the Bible. So um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating once you actually do that kind of a study, when you really get into the granular details and are looking at all of those, um, those kinds of, of influences, um, you start to see you know, uh, a a really cool picture of of how, you know, Joseph Smith, an early uh, American uh, uh, religious leader was engaging with the text of the Bible. Um, So So it's, it's,
0: it's, to to our faithful and more faithful uh, Latter-day Saints out there, um, you might be listening to this and thinking, well, this contradicts my uh, you know, my, the story that I've been told, or that, you know, I believe that was done, the process was done supernaturally. Now, I, I acknowledge that. And all that I'm trying to say is I just want you as an audience to be educated in what the scholarship is telling us. Um, and I would say the same with on uh, on my side, if you will, with the Bible, you know, we need to be aware of the, what the scholars are saying about my scriptures as well. And then it just gives you another data point that you can work with, um, as you uh, maneuver in this world and try to figure things out, right? Sometimes you just need to have as much information as possible, and you could decide where you want to go in, in that regard. But I think it's good for us to have knowledge of these, of the scholarship. I want to talk a little bit about also uh, Adam Clark's commentary and his th- that influence on the Book of Mormon. That's a relatively new development in scholarship, and maybe just talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, in regards to Joseph Smith being influenced by Adam Clark. Up to this point, um, Tom Wayman um, has done some really good um, work um, in that area. Um, a handful of other scholars sort of did some preliminary work pointing in that direction, um, but Tom Wayman and Haley Wilson-Lemon um, just last year uh, had an essay published in um, University of Utah Press. Um, Mike McKay and others, Mark Ashurst mcgee and Um, Brian Hauglid all edited Producing Ancient Scripture. It's a really good collection of essays. It's a long book and it gets over 500 pages. Highly recommend that um, to to everyone that's watching, you know, your your audience, Um, anyone who's interested in Mormon studies, I highly recommend that book. But they have an essay um, in there where they look more specifically at Joseph Smith's revision of the Bible, um, particularly the New Testament. and they, um, they argue that they're, that they discovered um, somewhere around 300 or so instances where they can um, tie back the changes that Joseph Smith made um, to the New Testament back to Clark's commentary. And more specifically on um, the Book of Mormon, um, I have an essay that I've been uh, working on um, that uh, where, where I look at the um, quotations of Isaiah, particularly. Um, in the Book of Mormon, and I, I had essentially, because I had created that critical text um, of just the block quotations, and spent so much time engaging with that material and that data, that I wanted to be able to explain the variations. Um, you know, all basically on my on my end, all of the little white spaces, and some of those can be explained stylistically. You know, there are some things that are that could be called Smithisms. Um, uh, in the text, like he um, enjoyed, you know, uh, adding in certain chapters, um, O isles of the sea, um, the, just little phrases like that. Um, when there were certain words in italics, sometimes he would change that to yay, um, and that was pretty consistent, you know, little things like that. But there were others that I couldn't explain. Um, with recourse to sort of stylistic difference or just wanting to change the wording or italics or something like that. Just other others that were substantial that you know didn't have anything to do with the wording or that were, didn't seem really necessarily clumsy. And so I started a notebook, started writing in you know just a list of these different changes and I was um, reading through a handful of different uh, commentaries that were widely available um, in the early 19th century. I knew about Tom's and Haley's work and, um, you know, on Adam Clark. And so I was looking at um, commentary by Thomas Scott, by Matthew Henry and Adam Clark, um, different commentaries. And I decided to just start with Adam Clark. Um, And I knew, you know, the stories um, about um, um, Emma's uncle and um, how he talked about only 10 years after um, the publication of the Book of Mormon, how he talked about, Asking Joseph Smith some questions about the the Book of Mormon because Joseph Smith Smith was trying to convert him um, to Mormonism since he was a minister himself uh, in Methodism. Um, And he essentially, you know, shared this story that, um, you know, one time when he was saying that, you know, telling me about how he was dictating the the, the book, I asked, you know, Joseph Smith um, if if the, the the spectacles that were translating the text for him would work for anybody does it only work for you or could somebody else put them on and see the translation as well and um joseph Smith, you know um according to the story um said yeah no they would work for anybody it doesn't just work for me um and so uh, i think his name was nathaniel lewis um, um lewis says um, okay great well i actually have clark's commentary right here and i could just pull it down and in the notes there's all of these different scripts. And so if I could just throw those on and I could look at the script and see what, what it would translate to, then I'll believe. Like that's a really easy test for me to know what you're saying is true. And according to him, um, you know, Joseph Smith was not too happy and stopped trying to convert him um, after that. Um, so you know, just from that story, only 10 or so years after the dictation of the Book of Mormon and the way that he described it, the context was during the dictation of the Book of Mormon. Um, it would have been the, the first part in Harmony, um, but um, he uh, um, had access to, to Clark's commentary, and um, Clark's commentary was far more accessible than a lot of uh, people are aware. It wasn't just that you had to buy all four or five volumes all at once and spend all of that money. You could actually buy individual signatures of different parts, and then it, um, if you were able to get, you know, the whole first Comment like the first volume of the commentary, you could take it to a binder and have it bound. Um, So, uh, Clark's commentary was everywhere, and he was the premier Methodist Bible comment uh, commentator uh, at the time. So, um, jumped into that one, started making comparisons, and I was really surprised at the time I was working as an admin assistant in pediatrics at the University of Utah. I was kind of in between my grad programs, and I was taking a intro to theory uh, course in the English department at the University of Utah I was too busy but I had you know had this whole list of potential you know things that I had found I sat that down for about six months because I was just too busy that semester with work and school and then um, literally weeks before we went into the pandemic I went back over my notes found my notebook jumped back into it and I went through the entire thing exhaustively and um, presented it to a handful of different friends individually, like a week before the pandemic, like we could still get together for lunch um, and then went into pandemic. And so, um, so I have, yeah, that paper that I've, I've uh, written and compiled and hopefully we'll be able to have that out within the next year or so as well. But yeah, in that one, I, um, I argue um, that um, um, that Clark's commentary was involved um, in the dictation process of the Isaiah uh, chapters. In
0: the Book of Mormon. Cool. Well, um, yeah, it's very interesting to have you discuss this uh, work of yours because I, th- I think in my audience will find it uh, fascinating. You know, um, one of the things that we were talking about was um, at this period of time, uh, the, the Book of Enoch uh, kind of loomed large uh, in, in in Christianity. And because there was a recent translation that was done that kind of sparked uh, kind of a debate and controversy as to whether the book of Enoch that, that was translated was something that came, uh, was pre-Christian, or was something just to try to maybe, was written to kind of sh- make the quotes that are in the book of Jude uh, fit. And so there was this kind of debate in the in the world about this uh, whole thing, just talk a little bit about that, and where kind of Joseph might have uh, fallen in that uh, area.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. I, I think it's a super interesting topic. Um, so, yeah, um, that that issue kind of got uh, gained popularity back in the 1970s within Mormonism um, because the Ensign, um, sort of the official, you know, um, magazine of, of the LDS Church published a series of um, essays that were written by Hugh Nibley, um, LDS scholar. Um, And he went through and and essentially argued that, yeah, Joseph Smith couldn't have known anything about the Book of Enoch. It was too recent of a translation in 1830 um, since it was published in London in 1821. Uh, It was a new translation by Richard Lawrence. And so, um, yeah, that's gotten a lot of attention um, over the years and Um, Some really, really good work uh, has been done on it. Um, Mike Quinn's second edition of his Early Mormonism and the Magic World View, I think he added something like 60 pages to that chapter (laughs) in the second edition. And he had this whole section that expanded on, you know, like that question, you know, where did Joseph Smith um, kind of fit um, in sort of the the craze for for Enoch? Or was there even a craze um, at at the time? Uh, Because Hugh Nibley said that there wasn't. That, that was kind of the key. Um, he said that no one cared about it; it went totally ignored, and no one like until you know the 1840s. Um, like in 1840s, sort of the first documented, like you know, Parley Pratt had it, and he wrote um, you know some some articles in the Millennial Star on it. So um, yeah, that that question has been kind of has kind of loomed large, I guess, um, for those who jump into these specific kinds of questions, and. Um, it's been really interesting to sort of observe the conversation um, from you know 1998 with uh, Mike Quinn's second edition up until you know, around today, um, because um, he he essentially from what it looked like had found a potential um, reprinting of the Book of Enoch in 1828, and um, he had found that in. Uh, National Union catalog of pre1956 reprints it was this very specific basically like uh, you know it, it was a, it was almost a thousand volumes I think it was pr- created by the um, Library of Congress um, in the mid 20th century it was basically a huge encyclopedia of all of the different books in all of the different libraries in the US so it was sort of like you know if WorldCat. Um, if, if your viewers are familiar with WorldCat, but in print form, you know, before the, the, the internet. And um, there was, it says it in there. If you look at, at that specific volume, um, it says that there's an 1828. And so Mike Quinn, you know, pointed at that and said, well, look, like the Book of Enoch was more popular. It was, they got another printing in 1828. And then um, a student, um, a graduate student, um, uh, Salvatore Cirillo, in t- 2010, I think um, at um, uh, I actually can't remember where exactly he was. Durham, maybe, but um, I think he was in the UK. And he wrote on this specific question for his master's degree. And um, he misquoted Quinn and said that it was published in 1828 in America. Um, so if you if you're only using his thesis, then you you think oh there was a publication a printing of the Book of Enoch in 1828 in America. Oh wow, that's perfect timing for Joseph Smith to be working on it in 1830, 1831. Um, Cause as I have, I don't think I've really said this quite yet, sorry. Um, in Joseph Smith's revision of Genesis one through six he added an entire new chapter um, in between Genesis five and six which is um, Moses seven. And Enoch basically becomes uh, sort of a proto-Christian prophet um, like uh, or apostle um, like um, you know, one of the apostles in Acts, and um, he goes around. You know, he travels to different um, you know areas and preaches, um, and you know it, it's this big narrative. He sees this panoramic vision um, of of the world and its history, and just you know sort of the whole plan of salvation, right? And um, so you get this whole addition about about the figure of Enoch and um, in Joseph Smith's revision of Genesis. And the uh, the, yeah, the, the whole complication here, um, is whether or not he had like the, the crux of the conversation has been whether or not he had Lawrence's 1821 translation, and that was basically set that way by Hugh Nibley. Um, and I sort of entered that conversation last year with a publication to essentially say, um, why are we focusing on that question? Um, if you actually look at um, the the literature at the time, Lawrence wasn't the only one that was providing at um, at least some translations of the Book of Enoch, the relevant portions um, of the Book of Enoch. Um, The first translation of it was actually in 1715 into English um, of chapters one through 32 of Enoch. And um, after that, there were subsequent translations. um, And if you look at all of the the literature, there was an explosion of publications um, just after 1800, and then especially in the 1820s. There were lots of different newspapers and books and other things that were commenting on uh, the Book of Enoch. So when I look at what, um, at least what Joseph Smith produced, right? The texts that Joseph Smith produced, you have that additional chapter, what's called the extract of the prophecy of Enoch, Moses 7, in the Book of Moses. you have uh, an allusion in, I think, section 107 of the um, Utah-based LDS churches um, doctrine and covenants, um, where it describes Adam having um, this conversation. With, you know, he's speaking to his entire family, all of his posterity, and Adam on Diamond And There's just this little note that says, um, "You know, all of this was written in the Book of Enoch, and it will come forth in due time." And it's kind of like, what? Mm-hmm. what? Can, Give, give us more about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just these fascinating little little tidbits, right? And um, um, to, to my eye, when I look at, you know, everything that I could find, because in my paper in Dialogue last fall, I was trying to look broadly at the availability of, of Enoch. I tried to find every book, every newspaper article, everything that even mentioned Enoch um, in it. Not just the book, but just Enoch. And um, looked at all of that material, and when you compare that with what Joseph Smith was working on, I, I think it's 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 a problem to focus so much on Lawrence because um, really, even if you look at Hugh Nibley's comparisons between the Book of Enoch and the Book um, and you know Smith's edition um, of the extract of the prophecy of Enoch, there really aren't that many comparisons. Uh, Nibley focused more on other. Jewish pseudepigrapha, um, other ancient texts um, that aren't the Book of Enoch in in his comparisons. There's very few connections that he actually makes to the Book of Enoch. Um, So for me, um, it's pretty clear that Joseph Smith knew about the Book of Enoch, that it would come forth in due time, um, that it was was coming. Um, It was in America. uh, There were some public debates uh, about the Book of Enoch in the 1820s. Uh, that that included references to it that that I found and discussed in my paper. Um, But yeah, as far as Joseph Smith goes, I don't think that he had, you know, actually had a copy of Lawrence's um, translation, but that he was very aware that there was a translation, that he was very aware of some of the conversations going on about the book, and um, that that influenced the way that, you know, he was incorporating um, his ideas um, on Enoch into his dictations.
0: So it was interesting because you actually tried to track down this 1828 edition and uh, what did you find?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, I uh, unfortunately it doesn't exist. It, it was not only not printed in America, it wasn't printed at all. Um, I think um, after engaging with the, the, the very helpful um, archivists at the, um, the Rare, uh, I guess it's like the Rare Books Department, I think is what it was called at the New York Public Library. Um, that was where the national, that 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 you know, huge book, um, the the whole the whole series um, said it was at. Contacted them, looked through a handful of their twentieth um, century catalogs of um, their their holdings of the Book of Enoch and those kinds of things, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And they said, no, we we don't have any record of ever having this. And so I I noticed that um, what they did have prior to the creation of that National Union catalog um, was two um, two editions, one English and one Ethiopic um, of an 1838 printing. And then when I looked back at the National Union catalog, they only had one of those, and then they had an 1828. And so to my eye, it looked like it was just a printing error. The person at the New York Public Library would have been, they had these note cards that were all set up for, you know, for people to just write on the note card, send all the note cards into the you know um, into the project, and they'll get pub, they'll get added and then published. And I think that whoever wrote 1938 did it. Pr- the three, the loop, a little too low, and it might have looked like a two. So 1828 instead of 1838, but it, it was it definitely was never pub published though. It was not printed. That did not happen.
0: <laughs> well, and you <laughs> actually had point. the opportunity to. to- let d michael quinn know about this before he passed
1: right yeah yeah he he came and spoke at utah state university and i was um, assigned to co- kind of hang out with him um, for the day uh, make sure he went to the different appointments that he had and, um, we had spoken a couple of times before that but never in depth um, in, in that way spending an entire day uh, with mike was incredible and yeah i uh, i was in the process of of doing some of the preliminary work for that paper um, and I, I got to explain the whole story to him and you know um, how his his little note pointed me in that direction and he uh, his reaction was hilarious you know I, I told him like yeah it doesn't exist it's you know <laughs> the the source that you were using unfortunately like it was probably a printing error and he laughed he kind of said oh no you know he's like well um, I I love that you that you went down that road. Right? He's like, a lot of people don't like my lengthy notes and all of that kind of stuff. But I do that because I want to sort of start the road for other scholars. I want, you know, I want to just point them in those directions. And then for people like you, when, once you actually really fully go down that, then you find, you know, what is there or what's not there. Um, so he was just a gentleman, um, about it. Mike was incredible. You
0: know, I just, uh, uh, you know, in his passing, I just, maybe, maybe just comment briefly, what kind of person was D. Michael Quinn?
1: Mike was one of the most generous scholars I've ever, I, I ever met. Um, I was blown away. You know, I, I was kind of scared to tell him. <laughs> and he was just exactly that kind of person, you know, that that you could actually engage with him and say, you know, that was, it, it, Unfortunately, that was, a, that was wrong, you know, and, and um, uh, that, that little tiny piece of, of, you know, that one page um, in your really important book, um, you know, is, is just slightly, you know, we'll just, we'll have to add another footnote in the future to that. Um, but uh, he was just kind, you know, in, in every interaction I ever had with him. And it's just an incredible scholar too. I can get into the weeds, right? I can go down all of those, but I'm not, uh, and this is funny because I think some people would respond differently to this. He, to a lot of scholars, he seemed like he went down all of those roads and was just always way too much in the weeds and left way too long with end notes. And some of his endnotes were a page and a half long, you know, um, and I think a couple longer. Um, but I, he, he still had the, the kind of self-control to know this is, I, I've, gone, I've gone down this a little ways, but this is where I need to stop. And I need to leave that for other people. And um, I, I really respect that because he did that with so many topics. I can't even imagine um, being able to do the kind of work that he did. Like, I'm, I'm very much more like uh, Book of Mormon, you know, Book of Moses, some of the you know, dictated revelations and the Doctrine and Covenants, those kinds of things. Like, I get really, really into those and then just stick with it and find lots of things. But um, yeah, he, he was just an incredible scholar and an incredible person.
0: Thanks for sharing that. I just want to kind of close on one little story that, another thing that you uh, have, have made it an interesting speculation to me. And that is that you've come to the conclusion that, um, you know, in the, in the story that was told in 1838, that professor Anton had written an authentication of the translation being correct of the Anton transcript. And then of course, when he was told it was an angel that provided this, uh, these plates, he tore it up. Explain to me why you think that story is a later addition to the narrative. Yeah,
1: um, I, uh, for a long time, had, had wished that I could have some sort of resource that would put all of the different, you know, earliest, earliest accounts um, um, of, like, the production of the, the Book of Mormon into sort of a chronological order. And I was so happy a few years ago when um, Larry Morris's book um, came out, a documentary history of the Book of Mormon. It was published by Oxford University Press, and uh, he does exactly that. Like it's it's even better than I could have hoped for. So um, it, yeah, it was a couple of years ago. I was reading through the chapter um, on Martin Harris's um, visit um, to New York City with the characters document, and um, Morris actually points out in the introduction in the chapter, I think it's kind of toward the end that um, um, at the end of the introduction that the 1839 to 41 history that Joseph Smith wrote um, which became the official um, you know, the history of the church volumes um, that that was the first time that anyone had mentioned that Martin Harris actually had a translation of the characters, not just the characters. And um, I think that that little tiny nugget just sort of stuck <laughs> with me. And I, I was like, oh, that's you know really, really fascinating. So none of the earlier accounts have that. And then I was working on some things on the Book of Abraham, um, doing a review of the Joseph Smith Papers volume. Um, and a little bit before that, I was doing some other things that were all kind of related. And yeah, um, it seems to me that Joseph Smith realized the utility um, in sort of the, um, his narrative building and his, you know, in the building of his narratives and, and storytelling uh, um, of um, the story of the production of the Book of Mormon. That in 1838, 39, um, when he's working on the history of the church, um, at that point, Martin Harris was no longer there. He'd been excommunicated. Oliver Cowdery had been excommunicated. A handful of you know those earlier um you know significant founders of mormonism weren't there and um he was you know in in many ways sort of retelling um, um that earlier story usually that history is looked at as you know sort of the authoritative earlier history but the more that i engage with it the more i'm i'm of the mind that it's a retelling um that it's not just you know an issue with memory or something else, but that he's coming out of a really contested uh, period you know, in 1837 um, with some of his closest friends and confidants. And he wants to be able to, to have control of, of the narrative. And he wants to be able to tell his story the way you know he sees fit in any given moment. And so, yeah, you have this extra detail um, in that history that um, Martin Harris gave not just the characters, for, um, uh, Charles Anton to look over and say, yes, this is some sort of reformed Egyptian or not, um, but that he gave him a, a translation to go with it and that Anton um, authenticated the translation. And that's what that paper you know, would have said. If we jump back to um, Joseph Smith's um, purchasing of the, not only the, you know, the mummies, but the papyri uh, as well with Michael Chandler in um, 1835 in Kirtland, You have that exact same scenario. It's almost the same story um, uh, in some ways. Um, Joseph Smith and I think Oliver Cowdery um, both go grab some of um, the um, some other documents and things that he uh, and characters document in particular actually so you already have a very um, uh, clear connection um, between the two stories. Um, But they you know Joseph Smith comes back and he starts to actually you know indicate oh okay well these scrolls, you know, from Abraham and Joseph, and, um, you know, starts telling them you know, a bit about that and doing some translation work kind of on the spot. And Michael Chandler signs a note saying um, Joseph Smith basically knows how to translate Egyptian. Um, and, you know, I've shown these around to all the, the, you know, the, the best luminaries, you know, all over the different cities. And the, I'm sort of affirming, you know, that Joseph Smith knows how to translate. And so he gets this little document and, you know signed by Michael Chandler and in the process of um, showing um, the the mummies and the papyri um, Joseph Smith was able to also show the little certificate you know indicating that the translation that he had done was correct um, you know according to Michael Chandler Michael Chandler didn't know Egyptian um, he, he he couldn't have indicated that nor could have um, uh, Charles Anton um, um, done that you know he wouldn't not not only, you know, couldn't have you know said yes, this is an accurate translation of Egyptian, but you probably wouldn't have known enough about Egyptian to say yes, this is reformed Egyptian either. Um, plus, Anton himself um, said no, there were Greek and Hebrew characters, there were some Roman ones that were sort of tilted or something like that, with a you know larger circle um, around them with different compartments. And um, so um, yeah, to me. Since we have that first, that, like that, that little detail that Martin Harris is claiming that um, Charles Anton had, you know, it signed off on the, the translation being accurate, um, only showing up after 1835 in a retelling of the earlier history, to my eye, um, that looks like the 1835 experience is influencing Joseph Smith's rewriting of the story. And that in that new context, Joseph Smith realizes and understands the utility um, of that experience that he learned in 1835 with Chandler. He probably got excited at some of the, you know, people's faces as he showed the mummies and showed the little certificate. And, you know, that has helped um, in in telling that story in the official church, you know, ever since that this eminent scholar indicated that Joseph Smith, you know, had translated the Reformed Egyptian on the plates accurately. So Yeah, that's kind of my working theory. I haven't published on that yet. (laughs) Um, I haven't haven't even really started the process of piecing together a paper on that. But yeah, we were just talking about that the other day.
0: So it's kind of fun to share. Yeah, it's, it's very, very fascinating to hear the story. Now, again, folks, this is one of the top minds in Mormon scholarship, who's sharing with you some of uh, his thoughts and also some of the discoveries he's made which I find truly fascinating. I also think it's really awesome that you were able to tell D. Michael Quinn your your finding, and you know he so appreciated the fact that you were following the footnotes, uh, because that was just so important to him to have all that. And so it's just been a really cool conversation to have with you today, Colby. We did get down in the weeds a little bit, which this channel's not afraid to do, and uh, to have these kind of conversations, because Partly, I feel this channel is, is kind of breaking new ground uh, with some of my interviews, things that have not been to- told before, stories that haven't been told before are being told on the channel. And I just wanted to share with the audience the, one of the finest minds in Mormon scholarship. And, ha- and, and, and it's been truly a delight, Kobe, to have you on my channel. I want to thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you, too. I really appreciate your kind. And I I've, I've really enjoyed watching the channel. All the different interviews have been great. So thank you for having me on.
0: I appreciate that, man. It always means a lot to me when my guests say, I love your channel. It's like, wow, they're actually watching my channel. (laughs) So either way, I just want to remind my uh, viewers to uh, hit the like and subscribe button and uh, leave your comments uh, down below. Um, I will be providing uh, links to some of the uh, discussion material that we've had today. I'll talk to Kobe about what kind of links we can provide afterwards. And uh, you just have a wonderful day and uh, all will be well. We are going to get through the apocalypse any day now. So have a great day.